and welcome to the Well-Read Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion on books and reading. I'm Hallie. And I'm Anne. And we are librarians who love to read and talk about books. And today we have a listener suggestion that actually came in months ago, so I apologize for how long it took us to get to it, <laughs> uh, but we do appreciate the suggestion. Uh, we had a listener ask us to talk about books where the characters were dealing with chronic illness because that was something that this listener dealt with and I think that they felt like they would like to see themselves reflected in the books that they read. So that is our topic for today. And I think before we get into it, we probably have a little bit of personal information to share. I, I know I, I was planning on sharing that I do uh, have a chronic illness, an autoimmune illness that I've been dealing with for probably, gosh, over 20 years now, about 20 years. Uh, I'm very lucky it is well managed at this point, but it certainly is something that has impacted my life at various times, either a lot or a little, uh, just kind of depends. That's the way chronic illness goes. So I, uh, I certainly understood and empathize with the listener who wrote into us saying that it's, it's a hardship and, and that they wanted to be able to read about people in similar situations. So I, I, we were talking before the, before we recorded that we had looked on, uh, I, I just did some research on, uh, you know, research i'm doing air quotes on wikipedia <laughs> and and was surprised at how many how many conditions are considered chronic illness mm-hmm. and there were lots of things where i thought oh i have that right. oh all right that's that's also me that makes so much sense to frame it in that way that i i hadn't before so yeah it was it was very illuminating so i don't think that there i, I will say i think that i see more reflections of chronic illness in Books now, we're talking about fiction here, I would say. I think you can find plenty of nonfiction about illness, but we're talking about fiction. And I see more of it now, but still not much. So something I think is is talked about a bit more now and you see it reflected, but it's certainly not something that we had a wealth of choices uh, from our, uh, at least my personal reading, which is usually, I do try to draw from books that I have read when, when we talk about books here. When I was looking through the books that I have read, I, d- I did have some, but not a huge number. So I think that's something when when we talk about books and publishing and diversity and inclusivity, and that is an area where I do think that there is r- a lot of room to improve, where different people's abilities and and disabilities need to be reflected in right. in literature that we don't see right now so right at least in adult books i'm not sure maybe juvie stuff is yeah yeah that that is something i came across and that's why two of my books are why <laughs> because right. that is um that's just not um it's it's not as though adult books don't deal with with hefty things but but i feel like it's it's been very very recently that they've been um they've tackled disabilities or or illnesses mm-hmm. or or anything uh, medical with um an eye that people still live normal lives right and and that it's a facet of someone's life and not um not just their whole identity yeah right which i guess i guess the ya books i've i've picked that is a big part of um, you know, they're about these topics, but I think that it just, it, there's just a way that it's been handled differently in YA for, right. for a longer amount of time right. that, um, that 
that the adult world seems to be catching up with a little right. bit, but it's it's kind of curious how that works. Yeah, I think generally what we've seen is that children's and young adult books got on the, I don't know, I they, know were more, oh, I, they were more open <laughs> earlier to right. various uh, perspectives and representations than adult books. It does seem like adult books lag behind a bit in that. And that's one thing when you talked, you, you said something about, you know, it's not, it's just a part, it's just an aspect of the character. It's not their whole, it's not the whole story, basically, that's right. being told. And I think that's very true when you look at other kinds of diverse books, things like LGBTQIA, right. where for a long time it was only the coming out story. It was only right. the struggle. And you see that far less now. Now it's much more just part of the character is right. their sexual identity and their right. gender identity. So um, anyway, so it's just interesting. This feels like uh, a very timely topic to me because I do think we are seeing more of it in publishing. And so I think... I thank the listener for suggesting it because I think that it was for a long time hard to find these kinds of books and it's getting easier, but it's still not as prevalent as we would like it to be probably. Right. And I actually, as we were, as we were talking, it feels like books did exist, but there was a sensationalism aspect mm -hmm. to it or that, um, that doesn't seem to like I should say all of my my books I that I went with um, are about mental illness and I feel like it's been very very recently that that hasn't been taken as look at this person who's crazy mm -hmm. and now it's more a much more empathetic um, view of of mental illness and and that that just has seemed you know the last 10 years right. would maybe be a stretch i would put i would put it even less than that um it, it, which is is kind of crazy to have things that are that common to have been handled so poorly for so mm -hmm. many years mm -hmm. so um so and and definitely that's that's a nice shift in in yeah. publishing where maybe maybe if we were to do a uh chart we would say yeah these things existed in in the books but they weren't the tone of them was very different right yes i think that would be true all right well why don't we go ahead and we can start talking about our books okay um so my first book is challenger deep by neil schusterman and i i don't know if one can say one has a favorite book about depression <laughs> but if you if you can mine is sorrow and bliss although that's oh, not depression. yeah that's, that's oh. an unnamed uh, right mental illness but oh shoot I guess we've talked about that already. We so. did. Yeah, we have. We couldn't have talked about that again. <laughs> Change everything. <laughs> Scrap the whole thing. I'm starting over. So I should also give a, a full disclosure. I, um, I I picked mental illness because I struggle with mental illness. And so um, the, these are the books that have, have stood out to me, I would say, um, in the, the ways that I experience things. So I don't want to suddenly spring new information on people as I'm talking about these books. Um, so in this book, in Challenger Deep, the mental illness that the, the character is dealing with is never actually named, but that's how I, I read it for depression because mm -hmm. that's what I struggle with. And so um, so I think that, that your mileage may vary, but I think that um, bipolar disorder is also um, pretty heavily um, suggested or schizophrenia possibly too. Um, so... It, it's just not something that's that's stated so 
Um, in the book, there are two storylines. Um, in one, Caden Bosch is an average high school student who is suddenly struggling to get himself together. He can't take tests anymore. He And he says that he's joining the track team, but really he's just walking around his neighborhood, neighborhood for hours with his spiraling thoughts. And then in the other storyline, Caden Bosch is the captain of a ship that's traveling underwater to the deepest place on Earth, which is the Challenger Deep um, in the Pacific Ocean seabed. So the the chapters sort of alternate between these two views of Caden's existence um, with the, the time on the ship serving as a metaphor for his descent into his mental illness. So um, Neil Schusterman wrote this um, with his son, Brendan in mind, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And he wrote the book based on Brendan's, Brendan's experiences. And Brendan actually also did... Um, there's illustrations throughout the book and, and he did those too. So, so it was a joint project between the two of them. I will say that the writing style isn't the easiest to read. It's, it's kind of experimental. I think this actually won the national book award for uh, YA. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a, it's more literary um, in tone. But when I read this, I identified with Caden so much. Um, his experience is very similar to what I went through in college, where I felt like suddenly everything, I had been a great student my entire life, and suddenly everything fell apart and I couldn't pull myself together and I didn't understand why. So um, so this really hit home for me. And I think that um, Neil Schusterman just finds these truths about mental illness that are so wise and profound that this book came out in 2015, I want to say, and um, eight years later, or is that seven years later, I guess, I can very clearly remember my emotional response to it and how, how much th- this impacted me. There There is a part at the end, I don't want to give too much away, but it talks about hope, and I still think about that that line and the image that went with it very, very, very often. So um, I I don't think I've ever read a bad book by Neil Schusterman, but this I think is his best by far. And that is Challenger Deep by uh, Neil Schusterman. Yeah, I loved this book when I read it. And I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, when it starts, you're not quite sure what story it's telling, if I'm remembering. Right. Yeah. And, and I liked that aspect of it very much because I think the disorientation helps put you in the mindset that you're intended to be in right. for that story to be told. So I, right. I liked that a lot. Yeah, I, I kind of struggled with how much should I say about right. this book because that is kind of an, an, a piece that is right. that you, you don't know exactly what's going on, but, uh, but you, I sort of had to. So sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My first one is Luster by Raven Leilani. And this is about a woman who is a 23-year-old art student, but she's working at a publishing house for, I think, children's publishing. Her name's Edie. And she meets a man named Eric online who is significantly older than Edie. I think he's in his late 40s, so basically double her age. He tells her when they meet uh, that... he uh, He is married, but it is an open marriage, so it's fine that he is going to have this relationship with Edie and she is sort of intrigued by this idea that he's married but she no warning signs because he seems so open about the open marriage and so she and she seems like she's a a bit of a loss in her life so it's like okay sure there's this guy and there there's a spark between them there's a bit of electricity between them and so she thinks okay let's go ahead and um, pursue this so 
they have this relationship and early on in the book Edie is fired from her job mostly because she has had dalliances with coworkers that are inappropriate and so she gets fired and she takes on a job as a, like a DoorDash driver or something like that like a food delivery person and one day she delivers food and it turns out she is delivering food to Eric's wife Rebecca mm. who works at a hospital as I want to say a coroner but I don't think that's that's basically what she does but I don't know if that's her actual title I don't want to give anything away about this book and the way things unfold but Rebecca seems to be aware of who Edie is and invites Edie into their lives and sort of the unspoken part about why she is invited into their lives is because Eric and Rebecca are a white couple and they have adopted a daughter in the last few years and their daughter is black and Edie is black and so the assumption is that Edie has something to offer to their daughter. That's kind of all I'm going to say about that, about the actual (laughs) story. Uh, So Edie Edie deals with uh, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, and it is part of the story where she will be in certain scenarios and she will think to herself, oh, I need to be at home because there might be an issue that I need a bathroom or there is. It just, if she's uncomfortable, if that's displayed in through the book so it's one of those things that goes back to what we were just talking about it is a part of her life but clearly just a part of her life it doesn't define Mm -hmm. her it doesn't impede these other aspects of her life it just is a part of her life but it certainly is present where it's not something she can ignore it's not something that's just a side mention and then is never mentioned again you know it's it's a consistent part of the story which I think is very true with chronic illness like I said in my own personal life, like sometimes it impacts you a lot. Sometimes it doesn't impact you at all. It just depends on the day. It depends on the time of year. There's just so much. It depends on your medication. There are lots of things. So I liked that aspect of this book because I thought it was woven into who Edie was in a way that felt very natural and very much like how it really exists in life. So um, this book actually reminded me a lot of Queenie by Candace Cardi Williams. I don't know if you've read that book uh, because it's all about these characters that are frustratingly real and that they make decisions <laughs> that you just think, why are you doing this? What are you doing? But it's just, they're decisions that somebody would actually make. So I, I liked it. It's one of those that I think would be really good for a book club to read because I feel like I would have appreciated it a bit more if I'd had a chance to discuss it with other people. But it was a very good book. It's called Lester by Raven Leilani. That was such a big book, too. It was a big book. Popular book, yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, next is The Devil in Silver by Victor Laval. This is a horror novel, and it begins with a man named Pepper being um, sort of manhandled through the doors of a mental hospital in New York City. And he just has hazy memories of of getting into a fight with the ex-husband of the woman that he's casually seeing. And he attacks the police who arrest him, but he knows that he isn't mentally ill and that he shouldn't be committed. And it turns out that the only reason he's there is because it meant less paperwork for the arresting officers and they were about to end their shift. And so they just took the the easy route. So he's told that they can keep him for 72 hours and he decides that this isn't really a bad thing because he can hang out for the weekend and it won't be the end of the world. Um, But when he is... uh, once he's inside, he keeps hearing this strange snorting sound. 
and no one else seems to be able to hear it except for one of the policemen, but he won't admit to anything afterward. Um, so this hospital is kind of, well, not I shouldn't say kind of, it's very run down and weird. And he is told that he can go anywhere there except for hallway number four. Um, so it's like classic <laughs> horror trope. Yeah. Um, so the next day, Pepper is medicated to the point that he can barely move and he can't account for the time that passes. And that night he wakes up to see a horrific monster dropping into his room from um, a remove from like, like the ceiling tiles have been removed mm -hmm. and it's a man with the head of a bison with these dead white eyes and the creature attacks him but then um it's grabbed by hospital staff who rush in and they they take this creature away so pepper has no idea what to make of this but he begins to make friends with the other people in the hospital and they also know about this creature and they call it the devil so they um, decide to band together to try and figure out what's going on, but they have to outwit the hospital staff, um, who are essentially their their real enemies, mm -hmm. and they, the hospital staff, staff is keeping the patients severely medicated at, at all times. It's hard to describe this book, and it's hard to describe the tone of it, because it sounds, it's not quite a horror novel the way that I typically think of a horror mm -hmm. novel there's a lot of humor in it and everything i'm saying sounds scary but it it's just written in this sort of different way and it's to me that made it much more about the mental illness mm -hmm. and the way that these people are being treated than the actual monster that's that's uh lurking these halls um the author victor victor laval is has been very frank um in many settings including this book about his own time in a, in a psychiatric hospital he uses the horror plot and tropes to de depict the fear and struggles that come when you're trying to exist in a society that doesn't really know how to handle mental mm -hmm. illness especially at this level and sort of the dehumanizing aspects of living with a severe mental illness mm -hmm. so that is the devil in silver by victor laval I've never read him, but I have heard him interviewed on podcasts before, and uh -huh. he is so interesting to listen to that every time I've, I've heard him just a handful of times, but every time I think, I need to read one of his books, like, yeah. I think that he's he's an interesting guy. Yeah, for sure. All right, my next one is Get a Life, Chloe Brown by Talia Hibbert, and this is a romance novel. You knew I had to have at least one. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> Chloe Brown is the main character, and she has fibromat fibromyalgia so she deals with chronic pain because of that and she is living her life just fine but it's kind of a small life I would say she doesn't have much excitement or joy or adventure and one day she is taking her daily walk which is something she tries to do every day to make sure she's moving her joints and her body you know regardless of how how much pain she's in and she has a near-death experience as she is taking her walk and so <gasps> that kind of has a uh, causes her to wake up a little bit and she realizes that she needs to shake things up in her life, that uh, she needs to have more of this excitement and joy in her life that is, is missing. So she makes a list of all these experiences that she has never had and her chronic illness has stopped her from pursuing these uh, and she decides no longer she's going to have this list and she's going to check everything off and she's going to get a life. And so the very first thing is that she is going to move out of her family's home into an apartment on her own. She has never lived on her own. And she moves into the apartment and the, the guy who is the 
what do you call that? The super of the building? Mm-hmm. Like the, yeah, superintendent, I guess. Um, he is this grumpy guy named Red Morgan. And he has his, his own issues that he's dealing with, not chronic illness, but some other stuff from his past that he is, is working through. And immediately when the two meet, they take, they don't like each other. They have this, he thinks she's kind of a spoiled rich girl. Uh, she thinks he's this grumpy, mean man, and they don't like each other. Um, but they find themselves through, it's kind of like a funny little cat rescue story. <laughs> That's adorable. Uh, they, they team up and, and they start talking and Red agrees that he should help Chloe tackle this get a life list that she has. So it's a romance. You know where it goes, the fact that they're helping each other. One of the things I really liked about uh, the romance of, or just you know the story in general is they are both dealing with their own things. And that is a large aspect of this book. So I actually think this is a great romance for people who don't generally like romances because it's not too heavy on the romance part. It's really about the characters figuring out uh, how to be together and what they're looking for in life and things like that. Uh, the other thing I really like about this book is how realistically Chloe's chronic illness is portrayed. There are There's one <clears throat> scene that sticks out in my mind is when I read it, just thought, oh my gosh, that hits so close to home, where she has two sisters. I have two sisters. And her family is very close. And they want to help her. They care about her, of course, right? They're they're her family. They love her. And right. you, there's this interaction with her sisters where they're clearly worried about her living on her own and asking her if she needs anything, asking her if she needs help. And she kind of bristles and she thinks, stop asking me, you know, or, or you know, go away. Like, they just, I don't want to talk to you about this. And that to me just felt so true because I think one of the issues with a chronic illness is you everybody wants to be independent, right? And have their own life. And there are times that you can't be, that you have to rely on other people, but there are times you can be. And I think that can be hard for the people who love you in your life because they don't know when those times are that you need help versus you don't. But it can be a frustration for the person with a chronic illness. Sometimes it can feel a little overbearing or sometimes it can feel like not enough. So it's just one of those situations where unless I think you have a chronic illness or love somebody who has a chronic illness, it, you probably don't realize quite how true that is, that, that element of frustration of being, of wanting that independence, but then knowing in the back of your mind that you can't always be independent. You sometimes do need that help. So I thought that that was very well displayed in this book. I thought that the emotions that Chloe has and sort of what she goes through as she's trying to figure out how to live her life independently while still managing her chronic illness felt very true to life. And I, I believe that the author also deals with a chronic illness, which I think helps lend that authenticity to the story. Another, actually, I'm going to throw in kind of a bonus pick here. Um, there was another romance called Seven Days in June, uh, mm-hmm. and the main character had chronic migraines. And that is something that I believe the author of that book dealt with as well. And again, that was another representation that felt very authentic to me. So mm-hmm. those are two romances that I think I liked actually that uh, what people think of as fluffy and light and not serious actually had a really good reflection of what it's like to deal with a chronic illness. So that is Get a Life, Chloe Brown by Talia Hibbert. I forgot about that aspect of that book and it's making me realize that I'm re- I. I'm super, super behind on 
tagging things on Goodreads. And I think I had more books to pick from. I know. It's funny. I did too. I thought at first when we talked about this topic, I said, oh, I might have to, I might have to go read some stuff and maybe Mm -hmm. I don't have it. But then when I started doing a little bit of poking around on Goodreads, I thought, oh, no, no, no. I have, I have plenty of books. (laughs) (laughs) The, The... the Hallie story is is called. I, I, oh no, I have plenty of books. <laughs> that is that should be the name of my autobiography. Yeah, <laughs> I had friends over for a book club a week or two ago, and as Anne knows, I have a beautiful library in my house. I have a room that's just all built-in bookshelves. It's so pretty. And I had a friend. One of my friends stood in the doorway and she said, "Hallie, this is a lot of books." <laughs> I said, you're right, it is. It is a lot of books. And the saddest part is, the majority of them I have not read yet. Right. (laughs) So many books for a little time. That's great. Okay. (laughs) Let me do my last book. Um, Okay, my last book is Let's Call It a Doomsday by Katie Henry. And this is YA. And it's about a girl named Ellis Kimball who lives in Berkeley, California, and she is a prepper. So she is filled with an overwhelming anxiety about the end of the world. And the only way that she can deal with that is to try to prepare with food storing and um, and supplies. This behavior isn't totally unusual because she's a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is uh, more commonly known as, as the Mormon Church, which I will now say... Uh, I've talked about being religious before on this podcast. This is the church that I belong to. So um, there are lots of things in this book that I I understood <laughs> very well. Um, and so in the church, emergency preparedness is um, is not unusual. It's something that members of the church are counseled to do. Oh, really? So it's, yeah, yeah. Not, not like in prepper. Well, well right. some people take it to prepper levels, right. but it's not, it, that isn't really the way it's described but food storage is a there's a reason i'm a food hoarder (laughs) it's because of 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 this because uh yeah just just being being prepared for emergencies so Mm -hmm. um so that that behavior is is very familiar to her and her family but she takes it way 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 far beyond what what they're doing and so that causes issues with her parents and her sister because they're trying to be accommodating and understanding that this is a mental illness, but um, that that the anxiety that she has is, is a mental illness. But it also is very disruptive to their lives because she can't work through that anxiety. And so she forces them to um, to do things that are not reasonable. So she goes to a therapist and when she's there one day, she meets a girl named Hannah outside in the lobby and they start talking and Hannah tells her that she has seen the apocalypse that that Ellis is so afraid of in visions and Ellis is there with her. And so Ellis is instantly bonded to her because she sees Hannah now as someone that can help her. And because she's so drawn to her and to what she's offering, she uh, Ellis begins to question her faith and her sexuality. But Hannah is only giving her vague information and really is sort of just stringing Ellis along um, by asking her to help decipher the visions that she says she's having. So if you know anything about mental illness, you know that the hope that someone or something can give help or relief is a very difficult bond to break mentally. So um, 
so Ellis is is trying to work through all these complex feelings that she's having and she ultimately has to decide what her future and the world's future <laughs> um, is going to look like. So I really loved how, how anxiety is handled in this book. I, I also suffer from anxiety in various forms. Um, the way that it impacts Ellis, but also the people who love her. And it's not really so common to see this much nuance in how mental illness is portrayed because it, to me it's usually this person has this thing that they're struggling with and everyone else around them has to be educated I guess right. on on the ways that that they need help but that's not really how life works there's there are ways that um the pe people are educated and are and are trying to help that are still also dealing with a difficult thing because their lives are being impacted by someone else's mental illness and um the way that that Hannah uses Ellis's mental illness to manipulate her but then Ellis also at times manipulates other people with through her mental illness specifically her family and and there's there's some other characters that I'm not talking about that um that she chooses uh certain behaviors or, or chooses certain actions I should say mm -hmm. um to get things that she wants so um it's just a much more complicated thing than I have this 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 thing that I'm dealing with and everyone else doesn't know about it. There, right. There's a lot more to it. So I, I really appreciated that, um, that aspect. I also liked that the, the way that she takes the church's statement about emergency preparedness, but because of her mental illness, she, she takes something reasonable that's explained one way and then changes it into something that's unsustainable for her mentally. Mm -hmm. And that to me is such a hallmark of mental illness mm -hmm. to um, see how something that's, that's, totally innocuous turns into a fixation that mm. that becomes a downward spiral so um i also loved that this isn't her rebelling against her faith but she just questions her place in it mm -hmm. this is not an anti-religion book i know that that many um people that listen are are friends of mine who are mormon mm -hmm. um and as a mormon i appreciated that because uh that's just not how religion is often right, portrayed right. in in books um and i will say just as a side note for for anyone listening uh there are a lot of things that you're going to that that you're like oh my gosh this hits the nail on the head so hard with being mormon but then there are some things that are not quite right so just be aware but i very much enjoyed this book and that is uh let's call it a doomsday by katie henry i've never heard of that that sounds very interesting i think you would recognize the cover maybe mm -hmm. I don't know. I'll Actually, maybe not. You'll, it, I really liked it though. It was. It was obviously. I'm. Mm -hmm. I'm being very favorable. <laughs> favorable about it. So I would. I would recommend it to you. Okay. Thank you. My last one is Fortune Favors the Dead by Stephen Spotswood. This is a mystery uh, series starter. It's the first in what soon will be three books, and it's set in 1945 New York. It stars two people: Lillian Pentecost, who is known as the most famous woman detective in New York, possibly even the entire country. Uh, she also <laughs> copes with multiple sclerosis. And her assistant is Willow Jean Parker, who goes by Will. And when the matriarch of a well-to-do family dies from being hit over the head with a crystal ball uh, <laughs> in a locked room, by the way, Lillian and Will are called in to solve the case. So uh, that's all. I mean, it's a mystery, so I don't want to say too much about I mean, it's, it's a locked room mystery, which I love. I think those are so much fun. It's wealthy New York in the 40s. I mean, yeah, what's better than that? But I think Nothing. what the real standout 
of this book. And I'm assuming the series, although I don't, I have not read the second yet. The third comes out, I think, in December. And I'm looking uh, at the second one right now. Yes, I actually have the second from the library because I'm, I want to read it. I just haven't read it yet. Um, but the, the standout of this, at least the first book, really it's Lillian and Will. They are uh, memorable characters. I would say they feel very singular. Like they, I don't, I don't think of many other books that I've read, particularly mysteries, and I haven't read nearly as many as you have, but that, that have, that have uh, these kinds of characters, I guess I will say. Um, they are both strong and independent. They're forging their own paths, uh, particularly Lillian, because we're talking about chronic illness here. She is, she's a force to be reckoned with, and yes, she is dealing with uh, multiple sclerosis and that does affect her and there are lots of parts of the book b- that address that of, of the actual physical implications of the fact that she has that she walks with a cane and part of the reason she hires Will is to have somebody who is more mobile and can can do the things mm. that Lillian cannot do and so I uh, I really liked this book a lot and like I said I have the second one downstairs just waiting to be read um, and I think that it's it combines a lot of things that I really like, but I think Lillian and, and Will are pretty pretty extraordinary characters. And I actually I saw this author uh, speak, and I got to meet him in a few months ago at a conference, and he was really delightful and and so appreciative that his book had been received as well, or his books have been received as well as they have, considering this very fact that we're talking about that that these kinds of characters haven't always been represented very well. And so right. he was very appreciative that that readers have embraced these books and the, these characters. Uh, so that is Fortune Favors the Dead by Stephen Spotswood. I'm super excited to read. I, I actually haven't read the first one. Oh, you haven't? Um, no, because oh. I am stupid. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm... I thought you had uh, for some reason. Yeah. Uh uh-uh. uh, but I'm I have the second one for committee stuff, yeah. and I'm I'm super stoked about it. One thing that I found interesting when I met him is I learned that he has a history as a journalist and as a playwright, I believe, which I think you can oh, weird. really see in his book. I'll just yeah. say that in the way he structures the book and everything. So interesting. All right, well, we will be right back with what we're reading this week. All right, Anne, what are you reading this week? Um, A change of pace from what we've been talking about. (laughs) Um, I'm reading Death by Bubble Tea by Jennifer J. Chow. And this is a new cozy mystery from the author of Mimi Lee Gets a Clue, which I think was in the mystery lover's world, a a fairly popular book. Mm -hmm. Um, It's about a woman named Yale Yi. And yes, she is named after the the university. And she is at the very beginning of the book. She's laid off from her job at a bookstore in her tight knit L.A. neighborhood. And she doesn't know what to do with herself. So she goes to see her dad at their family dim sum restaurant. And he tells her that her cousin Celine is coming in from Hong Kong that night, um, kind of out of nowhere. And he asks Yale to go to the airport to greet her. Um, Celine is a foodstagrammer and she's very social media fam- uh, savvy and she's very wealthy and just very with it and seems very superficial, but she's the closest thing to a sister that Yale has. 
um, but they haven't seen each other in probably 10 years. Yale is herself very bookish and doesn't own a cell phone or a car, but um, she and she doesn't get Celine's lifestyle at all, but she's always regretted that they aren't closer, but they really are just complete opposites. So Yale's dad asks them um, together to run a food stall at the new night market in the neighborhood, and Yale is really excited because he's going to finally listen to the su suggestions that she's had for the restaurant and offer different types of dishes than the traditional foods that he has always stuck with. So um, so Yale decides that she's going to research and create these bubble teas that they're going to sell. But when she gets to the stall, she finds that Celine is really only interested in how things will come across for Instagram. And so she has bought these gold flakes that she adds to the drinks and she has special glasses that look like uh, light bulbs and that she's going to sell them in these, these kind of novelty glasses. So Yale is kind of dismissive of this, but the ideas must work because the first customer that, that they have is clearly there, there for the photo potential of it. Um, but later on in the evening when everything is over, she Yale is taking the leftover food back to her apartment and she comes across a dead body and there's a light bulb glass with her. And so she realizes that it's that first customer and that um, the detective tells her that Celine's additions may not have been food safe. So they decide that they need to clear their names, but as they're sort of looking into what may have happened they realize that there are many people in this this woman's life who died um who may have had reasons to want her dead so um thus the mystery yeah. <laughs> um and really the food is the star in this in this book there's so many good food descriptions and the community is really diverse so there are lots of characters that run other food stalls and you're just going to want to to eat all of it i have i started a list of various foods that I need to go investigate in Nashville because they were mentioned as I was listening to this book and I was like ooh pupusas oh I, need to I love find where they have those yeah <laughs> so there's so don't don't read on an empty stomach and um, one thing that I liked about that um that community that's created is that the hallmark of many cozies is that there's a small town feel and either it's literally in a small town or it's it it feels very uh insular and that can be tricky when it's set in a city like LA but because of the way the community is set up it really creates that that feeling and I, I thought that that was done really uh, perfectly in this book um, there's a lot to do with family and uh, the sort of complicated feelings that come from being in a family that that are investigated in the book and that it's explored but the um, and the the bond between Yale and Celine grows throughout the book, but it still feels very light and frothy, which mm -hmm. which is the way a cozy should be. So that is Death by Bubble Bubble Tea by Jennifer J. Chow. Yeah, I would think having that community keeps it feeling like a cozy mystery with everybody knows everybody kind of feeling, but then it also lays the groundwork to expand exactly. for future installments outside of just the community, which I think is Yeah, really yeah, yeah. Well, I also have a book that is going to make you hungry. <laughs> Ooh. We should not be read on an empty stomach. It's Battle Royal by Lucy Parker. So, oh, you were so excited about this one. I know. So, the, All right. So we have been watching a lot of Great British Bake Off in my household <laughs> recently because a new season started a few weeks ago yes. on Netflix or, well, over in the UK. And then now we get it on Friday nights on Netflix in the US. But we also just discovered Junior Bake Off. So we've been watching that, which we have never watched before. So it seemed just like the absolute perfect time to pull this book off my shelf. Uh, it centers around a Bake Off-like 
competition called Operation Cake. So it is about um, Dominic DeVere, who is your typical grumpy, uh, classically trained chef. Well, he's not actually classically trained, but it, he comes across as a classically trained chef who is, or baker who is a judge on the show. And then Sylvie Fairchild, who was a contestant on the show and has now been asked to join the current season as a judge. And they did not get along when she was a contestant. She, Sylvie, is all about glitter and rainbows and everything very magical. And Dominic is very much just simple but perfect kind of uh, baking. So they, they just come at each other from very different perspectives. And they have an added layer of competition because uh, the princess or one of the princesses has just announced her engagement and they are trying to find the person that is going to make the wedding cake. And whoever gets the assignment of making the wedding cake or earns the assignment ends up getting a big fat check, which is helpful, but also the notoriety that would come from being selected as for a royal wedding. And both Sylvie and Dominic own their own small businesses. So they could both really benefit from the boost that being uh, the royal baker would provide for them. It It's so adorable, first of all. Like, this book is so adorable. And Lucy Parker is really good at writing banter, which, as you know, I love in a romance. Mm-hmm. And so the whole premise is fun. There's lots of good behind the scenes of a baking show, which I really like. Um, but then also... It's fun because they ha- there's this royal element, too, which I like royal stuff. And <laughs> Sylvie and Dominic kind of decide to start working together. There are some, some elements of the wedding cake that the engaged couple have said that they want included, but it's almost, they've almost given, it's a mystery kind of of what they're asking for. And I don't, I don't want to go into too much detail because it's not relevant unless you're reading the book about what the actual, but it's like, it's not clear cut. It's not, we want a chocolate cake with raspberry filling or something. You know, they have to figure out how the cake is going to taste and what is, how it's going to be decorated and stuff to match the expectations of mm, the royal couple. And then whoever does it better is the one who's going to get to actually make the cake for the wedding. So there is just, it's a fun combination of elements in this book that I'm really enjoying. It's perfect if you like Great British Bake Off. Um, But I actually think even if you don't like Great British Bake Off, you would still find a lot to like in this book. There was another book called Rosalind Palmer Takes the Cake that I really loved. And that Mm -hmm. one I I did feel like you kind of had to like Great British Bake Off to appreciate it. But this one has just enough of that stuff but I think if you watched any reality show, you would understand some of the tropes that they're playing with as far as the the person who comes across super nice but is actually secretly a villain who's a contestant, you know, things like that. I think they're I don't think you need to actually watch Bake Off. So that is Battle Royal by Lucy Parker. The romance set on a cooking competition is certainly having a moment it is having uh, yeah generally reality shows but especially cooking shows definitely having a moment yeah all right well that wraps up our list of books to talk about so let's go back and read them all off okay i talked about challenger deep by neil schusterman the devil in silver by victor laval 
Let's Call It a Doomsday by Katie Henry, and what I'm reading this week is Death by Bubble Tea by Jennifer J. Chow. And I talked about Luster by Raven Leilani, Get a Life, Chloe Brown by Talia Hibbert, Fortune Favors the Dead by Stephen Spotswood, and what I'm reading this week is Battle Royal by Lucy Parker. So if you would like to get in touch with us to give us feedback or a suggestion on a topic you'd like us to discuss, much like how we discussed these books today, you can email us at wellreadpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at wellreadpodcast. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your other podcast provider of choice. It really, really does help people find the show. Our theme music is Kitten by Poddington Bear. We keep our show notes at wellreadpodcast.wordpress.com where you can find a listing of every book we talked about in this and every episode. Thank you all for listening and happy reading.